This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. We also have Lee Chen Ren, the Director of Modern Alpha and Wisdom Tree. Joining us in the second half of the program is going to be Jeff Winninger. Uh, please note, Jeff and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a Senior Advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of same investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. It's really hard to avoid politics today, and on a day where there's a lot of news, uh, very political oriented. We're going to focus on the intersection of politics and the impact for the markets and your investments on today's show with, with two great guests. Uh, but before we get to them, first, Professor Siegel, we got the jobs report. Uh, maybe give us some comments on what you think is happening and, and that jobs report. Yeah, you know, uh, marginally better than expected. Um, but, you know, as, as I've been saying, since the virus I regard all these economic announcements as looking in the rearview mirror and only of marginal importance. Uh, you know, it's three weeks ago. We've got to look forward. I mean, that was the, uh, the, the heart of the surge. Um, what's really important um, uh, is forward-looking, and that means what are the virus trends. It means what are the treatments, therapeutics, and vaccine trends. It means what are the stimulus trends. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, all, uh, all those things are, are, are in the mix. So, uh, yeah, it, it, we, we got a, a little bit better than expected, a little bit lower unemployment than expected. It was disappointing. The participation rate is fallen. This means there's, there is definitely people out there that are just not looking for a job. Now, whether they got stimulus bills or uh, you know, uh, and or, or they don't think there's opportunities out there. Um, you know that is discouraging, and that did actually uh, go down. Similar, uh, the uh, participation rate um, has you know fallen dramatically since the um, uh, the pandemic. Uh, so yeah, I mean uh, overall was fine, but you know take a look at the markets. I mean S and P futures were up for ten minutes, and then they just fell right back down. Um, really, there's been you know, virtually no reaction uh, to this um, uh, employment uh, report. Um, on, on the stimulus package, uh, still a standoff, and uh, that is important. Um, but there is an expectation something is going to be done. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, you know, somewhere's going to come in the middle between the $3 trillion of the Democrats and $1 trillion of the Republicans, um, and, uh, and, and by the way, I know there are a lot of Republicans that oppose anything more, but all, all, if, if, if Trump approves it, there's enough Republicans to go along with the Democrats in the Senate uh, to, to make this a deal. So if they make a deal with the Democrats, uh, the Republicans can't stand in the way um, if, if Trump does. So that, that will um, that really make a deal. Um, money supply continues to increase slower rate than before, but M1 uh, is up 35% from the 1st of March when this uh, crisis, uh, you know, when the virus actually hit. On the virus front, we actually have good news. Uh, we definitely have stabilization, actually turndowns in those four hot states of California, Arizona, Texas, and Florida. Um, uh, it looks like that wave might be ebbing. I'm not trying to say it's over. It isn't over by any means. Uh, we do have death rates, by the way, as I, we, I pointed out for months, way below what we had in the first crisis, uh, and that is even age-adjusted uh, uh, death rates as we learn how to, uh, how to treat uh, the disease. 
Um, if we do get better trends and those better trends continue in those states, which I think is likely um, with social distancing, with mask wearing, um, you know, we could have it simmering in the background and, and be very much like Europe. Um, uh, there's, you know, some increases in Europe in some places and others, and then they, uh, but, but certainly nothing of what the rate we, we've experienced uh, here in the United States. On the vaccine front, uh, it, uh, no big breakthroughs, but no bad news. Um, uh, uh, no bad news is 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 good news because all of the vaccines, uh, the major companies have all proceeded through trial one, two, and are in the trial threes. This is excellent. Um, I would like to see a little bit more progress on some of the therapeutics, on the antivirals. Uh, we did get the word that remdesivir is going to be ready in in rather big batches. Which is the uh, one of the few therapeutics that uh, new new therapeutic newer therapeutics that 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 has been shown to cut the death rate um, that should go to nebulizer form. Uh, I would like to see a little bit more progress on that, but clearly, w- when two months ago I said I thought a vaccine would be available to high risk groups by the end of the year, I was called crazy. <laughs> I was even told not to to retract statements that I had made on CNBC and others. Now even Fauci and others are making that. Now I'm not going to go as far as Trump has said a vaccine by, by uh, the first week of November on Election Day, but uh, the, the progress on, on the vaccines has, has definitely gone uh, dramatically fast and um, you know, I would be really surprised if uh, uh, several of them weren't not 100% effective, but very largely effective and will be given to the at-risk populations um, by, the, um, by the end of the, uh, the year. Now, I want to let our listeners know about a, a new feature to get involved and ask you questions. There's an email address that we set up, AskSiegel, S-I-E-G-E-L, at wisdomtree.com. If you want to get questions into the professor, it's a new feature. We had a few people email in questions, professor. Uh, and one w- wanted to know if you would comment on growth versus value during this cycle, and is value dead? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Value has been, uh, you know, whooped by like we've never seen before. The worst 10 years of value versus growth uh, by some criterion that we've ever had since 1926. Actually, the underperformance of value really started in the financial crisis with the collapse of the of the financial. So it's really almost a 15-year phenomenon. Now, um, you know, who can call the turning point? We, we, the, the pandemic obviously gave a huge boost to uh, the information technology sector, and, and that is a low-dividend, uh, uh, high PE sector in general, uh, and, there, and therefore just widens the gap. Now valuations have reached extremes we have really haven't seen on value and growth since the top of the bubble the Internet bubble at the end of 99 and the beginning of of 2000. Um, I'm not going to call, I wish I could call it the date in which we're going to get a shift, but let me tell you two favorable things that I I think will help value um, toward the next year. One is the development of vaccines and the reopening of the economy. I mean, that clearly then... The underperformance of the of of, of the, uh, the the leisure sectors, the high the 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 sectors linked to the activity of the economy, will come back, um, which I think will happen in, in 2021. Secondly, um, it's my belief that uh, that interest rates are going to stay low by the Fed for years, several years. Long-term interest rates are going to stay very low. They're going to start rising, but you can't take advantage of that now. You're only going to be stuck in extraordinarily low rates, um, negative real rates. Um, and I think people are going to go to dividend-paying stocks as a source of income. And that push towards the dividend-paying stocks will have an advantage to value. So the, the, the source of income being stocks instead of bonds, plus the reopening of the economy, I think, argue for a very strong, for potential overperformance value in in 2021 and even going further. Now, uh, there was another good question on what 
the next market cycle will resemble? Is it something like after World War II, the 60s, 70s? Where do you see the next cycle looking like if you had to draw a parallel to history? I, I think uh, it looks to me like right after World War II, we had a tremendous increase in the money supply and a tremendous increase in debt. Uh, and everyone was scared of a recession coming back because uh, that's what they experienced for 10 years and so they were very cautious and then they found out they had liquidity and started spending we had a post-war spending boom uh, i think the buildup of liquidity uh in the money supply that i mentioned earlier is going to boom into the economy in 2021 it's going to cause inflation not rapid inflation but inflation well above fed target i think this is good for stocks I think it's terrible for bonds. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we have the potential for a, um, a, a very, very strong economy uh, in, in, in 21. I think it really looks like the post-war period, early, early post-war period to me. This is great. Uh, one final question. It's going to be a great transition to Greg Valliere, who's a chief policy strategist. Uh, when you think about the poll results in 2016 election and, and people didn't really get the Trump view right do you think they are sell, sell, telling a similar story now with biden's uh prediction versus trump how wide do you think the polls are off well, i'm really anxious i'm gonna with with being on with craig uh, uh, uh greg uh, here because uh, this is all right so here's 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 my ass- assessment um trump has recovered not well not not totally recovered but <laughs> has made a, a little bit of a u-turn is it too little too late you could really argue that, um, but in in the polls, he's come out of the depths. Um, uh, I, I, you know, on on the predicted market, I actually saw him going to forty four. The Republicans going to forty four includes the possibility that Pence might run, whatever. Uh, the Democrats at sixty and him at forty four. Forty four, by the way, for the Republicans in the predicted market is the highest. Um, since June 17th. So that's a very uh, interesting six-week period. He had fallen as low as 35, so 3044 is, 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 is uh, interesting. What's also, uh, what's also interesting is, is the Senate, um, which is actually now for president, for the first time I have ever seen it in the predicted market, more possibility that Trump would win. Again, this is unlikely. I'm not saying this, he's a favorite. But more likely than the Senate uh, remaining uh, Republican. Let me, though, go to your question. Could there be an undercount for uh, Trump? Um, Potentially, but um, I don't think it's going to be as great as it was in 2016, because I think pollsters have changed their techniques to count for the fact that they undercounted for, for Trump. Remember, the pollsters were really quite accurate in 2018, um, which, uh, a lot, uh, in terms of predicting the the switch of the House and 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 the Senate races, which really did favor Republicans uh, in terms of numbers in 2018 as opposed to 2020. Uh, so I think that they were pretty right on then. So I think they made a correction. So. Uh, there could be some undercount. I know there's unhappiness. I don't think Biden has done a great job. Um, and we want to talk about the vice presidential choice, which might come at any minute. Uh, according to Biden, of course, he had promised that this week was going to be uh, the week that he would announce it. And that's obviously of extreme importance because Biden would by far be the oldest uh, president of the United States if he is elected in and November. Well, let's bring in on that note, Greg Valier, Chief Policy Strategist at AGF Investments. I know both you and I follow Greg's notes on a daily basis. Uh, Greg, welcome to Behind the Markets. Great to be with you. Uh, you heard yeah. a lot of intro there with the professor. Maybe, Professor, you want to lead off here? Yeah. So do you agree with what I've said? Um, what is your handicapping at the present time? And now I'm going to ask you a, a question. Very rarely do we get a pollster except the day before election to, to give a prediction it could be wrong in 24 hours. <laughs> but I want, uh, it, it looks like, a, at least in the betting markets, a tight race between Harris and Rice, although Harris looks ahead. I definitely want your assessment of uh, 
the vice presidential uh, uh, choice over here, Greg? Well, first of all, great to be with you. Uh, I would say that if the election were tomorrow, Biden would win decisively. But it's not tomorrow. It's November 3rd. And I think the polls will continue to tighten. They've tightened this week a little. Uh, Biden still has a lead, but it's not in double digits anymore. So it's it's getting a little more interesting. And I think the vice presidential pick uh, will be a fascinating insight into whether Biden is a pragmatist or a uh, populist. Uh, I think the, the safe money, the conventional wisdom, is still on Kamala Harris. The conventional wisdom is not always right. Uh, she stuck a knife into Biden in the first debate, and some of the Biden people haven't forgotten that. Uh, I think she'd be best qualified of the candidates to be president. I have a wild card. My wild card is uh, a woman by the name of Val Demings, the former police chief of Orlando, Florida, a member of the House, was on the impeachment team in the House against Trump. Uh, she was a first-rate police chief, and I think if the issue of urban violence, gun violence, continues, uh, you see what's happened in Seattle, Portland, New York, a lot of cities, Chicago, Atlanta, I, I think Trump, uh, Biden may need to get inoculated on this issue. And Val Demings could do that, being a former police chief. So she, in my opinion, is still in the mix. Uh, Tammy Duckworth, who lost both of her legs in the Iraq War, is still in the mix. So there's still a few more days to go. I would expect the announcement to come early next week. Oh, so you think it won't actually come this week? Val Demings, by the way, is selling for seven cents right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, I would say that's a 14 to 1 choice. Wow. If you come in, that's a long <laughs> shot. That uh, really pays off, uh, Greg. <laughs> well, we'll see. I mean, there's several other names I, I did not mention. Uh, Karen Bass, I think, is, is no longer in the mix because yeah. she has a history of being very friendly to Fidel Castro. Uh, there, there are a lot and of other Scientology, am I right? And, and that as well, correct. <laughs> and there's some other names, but I mean, the conventional wisdom on this, I, I agree with, and I think that Kamala Harris would make the most sense. Why, what, what are your uh, negatives on Susan Rice, who is now a, uh, you know, the, the second runner, and not that far away from from Kamala? Well, she and Biden worked closely together when they were at the White House. But she has a problem, and that is Benghazi. And I, I think the is that a problem for the Democrats or the Republicans? Uh, that would give the Republicans a great argument. This would be on Sean Hannity's show every night on Fox, saying that Susan Rice concealed things in Benghazi. The Republicans I've talked to are eager to have Susan Rice as the vice presidential candidate. They think she could be a, a, a hindrance, actually. For Biden, so I, I don't. I don't. Is there a way I could bet against her? <laughs> could I? Could I buy? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> you you actually can. I mean, uh, uh, Susan Rice is thirty-five cents right now, so it's two to one. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Long short uh, trade here. We're you, talking. Do you really think? I mean, do you really think the American public cares that much about Benghazi? I mean, given all that has gone down over the last. Two or three years. That I mean, Benghazi seems like ancient history. We do have Susan Rice being really intelligent. No question about yeah, that. I, agree. I mean, her, you know, her creds on on that are extremely high. There is the question of is she the one that could take over the reins should something happen to Biden? But um, certainly on on smarts and degrees you don't get much better than susan rice I, a very uh, competent woman but again all of the republicans i talked to would be ecstatic if she were the running mate i think they feel she's got some baggage mm-hmm. okay all right so that's uh that's very what let, let's talk about the senate now i'm going to say something that and i did mention this in my opening commentary uh, which, uh, I, I, you know, three months ago I would have thought impossible. Is it possible for the Trump to take the White House and the Dems to take the Senate? Yes. Um, before, yeah. it was always rank order, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. maybe Trump won't make it, but, you know, the, the Republicans were, 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 were trading 70 cents on the Senate. 
but uh, what do you what do you think is uh, now now it's almost uh, saying that that's a possibility. Well, first of all, the Senate is a big deal, as you know, because it's the firewall against the House. The House uh, yeah. will stay liberal, and they will send a lot of activist legislation and uh, things like the Green New Deal, big new tax hikes, uh, to the Senate. The Senate traditionally, in the last few years, has blocked this type of legislation. The Republicans have a 53 to 47 seat majority, uh, and the Democrats are almost certain to lose one one seat. That's in Alabama. So then you would you it would go up to uh, it would go up to fifty four to forty six. So could you have a four seat swing? The Democrats would have to pick up four seats. If it was a tie, if Biden won, he would break the tie. So the four seats are Maine, Susan Collins, not in, in great shape. She could lose Colorado. Uh, I think there's a chance that. Uh, the uh, the Democrats could pick up that seat, Arizona as well, and then North Carolina. It's possible the Democrats can pick up four seats, losing one of theirs, and you do have that tie that yeah. the president would break. Yeah. So if they, if that's the outcome, uh, and, and Trump wins, obviously Trump would break the tie. If if Biden wins easily. If he wins by six, seven, eight points, I think it wouldn't be a question. I think the Senate would probably have a net gain of five or six seats for the Democrats. Yeah, there are some close ones. I mean, there's been a little bit of a shift. Uh, at Bullock in Montana, the yep. Danes is uh, polling much better now. There was a little boom with there, so yep. there's been some... Uh, a little bit of that hope of that seat is slightly disappeared. There, there are some really tight races. Iowa is a, That's a tight, tight race. I, I um, found polls this morning that just blew me away, showing Lindsey Graham virtually tied in South Carolina. I would have guessed he'd win in a landslide. Yeah. And, and uh, I think that even in Kentucky, Mitch McConnell is only up by three or four points. So if, if, there are some if, if Biden wins big, the, the Senate will clearly go uh, to the Democrats. And then you get a really fascinating story. Let's say the Democrats have a great night and they, they wind up with 53 or 54 seats. That's still not 60, which you need to break a filibuster. So could there be an effort? Uh, could Biden say it's time to change the filibuster rules? Barack Obama has already advocated doing that. If they change the filibuster rules, the Biden agenda could sail through Congress. And for the markets, which like divided government, which worry about tax hikes, that would not be a good story. Let me just yeah. introduce quickly, we're talking with Greg Valier, Chief U.S. Policy Strategist at AGF Investments. And Professor, I'll let you keep going. Yeah, I mean, uh, now, 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 I think we actually had a, a little discussion earlier. Um, it is possible for the Biden tax plan to pass even without the removal of the filibuster. Is that not correct, Greg? Well, they get one chance a year. It's right. arcane rules, but they get one chance a year to have a, a only a 50 vote, uh, uh, 50 votes to pass uh, a tax bill if it's attached to a budget resolution. So, again, it's kind of arcane, but there is one chance a year if a bill is related to budget issues that they could only require 50. So, yes. Some of the, much of the Biden tax plan could uh, make it. Frankly, I think Biden would be well advised to wait and not start right away if he wins in January with a big tax hike proposal. I think he would have to worry that the economy is still fragile. I think he would not want to start antagonizing the markets right away. So I think it comes later in the year, 2021. I think it comes later rather than sooner. I also, I mean, it is true that Trump got his through on exactly that one vote. Isn't that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, and, so, I mean, this is there's mm -hmm. definitely a precedent precedent for that happening. I also completely agree with you I, I, that even if Biden sweeps and uh, gets it through, um, I don't think it's going to take place until 2020. Yep. Because of the facts. I mean, it might pass in 2021, but very honestly, I don't think the, pres the, the, the provisions would take place until 2022 because of the weakness of the economy and, mm -hmm. and also, you know, it's, 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 
it would have to be retroactive. It's certainly not going to be passing until next year sometime. And I think I think Biden would focus initially on regulatory policy. He can change a lot. He can undo what uh, Trump has done. Biden could get tough in that area. I would be a little concerned about financial services, you know, fossil fuels. There are a lot of sectors that I think would see the regulatory climate change quickly. Because, we, you know, we could argue how much of the stock market. I mean, the, the thing that I would worry about the most, I, I think the biggest source of, the, of stock increases, and again, this is, this is my opinion, was actually the corporate tax cut, mm-hmm. more than the regulatory changes. Um, yep. uh, and that, of course, is going to be not 100%, but largely reversed by at least the Biden's um, uh, no, tax proposals. I'm not going back to the old rates, but um, taking away an awful lot of, of that tax cut. What do you think? I agree. He would go from 21% now, maybe up to 28%. And maybe more importantly would be the introduction of a really tough minimum tax uh, aimed primarily at the tech stocks. The, you look at you know Amazon, and in, in, I think it was two years ago, uh, made $11 billion and, and got a tax refund. So I do think there would be a minimum tax, and I think the the tax the tech stocks would have the most to worry about. Yeah, and there's also the uh, uh, the removal of what's called the low income foreign tax that he was, mm-hmm. uh, the that he also and that's also uh, really very important uh, also that in terms of that. Now let me just mention here, um, you know, for those people who say, "Oh my God." Biden sounds extremely scary for the stock market, um, and I've thought this through. But I also believe that if he sweeps, there's going to be a ton of money thrown at this country, uh, mm-hmm. to the cities, to the retraining, to the unemployment. You're going to get a lot of spending. So my forecast of a stronger economy does not change. Now, there will be higher taxes but uh, I still think that uh, that uh, the, the, the spending and the demand is going to be there. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, you look at state and local governments, you look at a, a wide range of sectors that have been clobbered by the uh, virus, and I think Biden would spend uh, quite a bit. You know, at some point we get to numbers that are so astonishing that we'll have to give this more thought. And by that, I mean, in this fiscal year, which ends on September 30, I think the deficit will be close to $4 trillion. It was going to be $1 trillion even before the virus. Uh, you look at next year, maybe $2.5 trillion, And I would argue that by the middle of this decade, you'll be seeing uh, a, a total U.S. debt of over $30 trillion. And at some point, debt servicing costs will become a problem. You know, maybe low rates will persist, and debt servicing costs can be handled for the next two or three years. But down the road, I think this kind of spending is going to lead to um, taxes. It's going to lead to a a fresh look at Social Security and Medicare. Uh, I I do think that, uh, and even interest rates, I think that the bond market at some point later in this decade is going to say enough is enough. I think it's earlier than later in this decade, Greg. Yep. Yeah, it could very well <laughs> I think be. Starting next year, they may well they'll start thinking about it. I, I have called that this year, 2020, is going to be the end of the 39-year bull market in bonds. Yep. And we will look back and say, oh, my God. And I don't, I'm not talking about a big hike and, and nothing like the 16% we saw in 81, but I'm talking about a steady rise. And mm-hmm. absolutely, when we know... Deficits get high, bond interest rates rise, uh, the home builders and, and buyers call uncle and Congress acts by closing the gaps. You could make a case, and I've heard you do this, sir, that uh, within a year or two, inflation could reemerge. Yeah, I do, do, and I do believe that will happen. And, you know, we'll, Fed will keep low and under political pressure not to fight the inflation as long as it doesn't get virulent, and mm-hmm. we'll let it ride at 3 4 and maybe 5% before they begin to take action. And even then, as we know, unemployment is going to stay high for a long time. Mm-hmm. So if Democrats sweep, they're not going to be in a mood to start clamping down on the economy. That's right. Yeah, I agree. 
I agree. Let, and let, we've had, let me, oh, sorry, I was going to say, Greg, if, I, if you don't mind, let me ask a question on sure. what's going on timely in the markets today. You know, you're having, in addition to all these other issues, uh, the, the tension with China has been front and center. We've been doing things like trying to ban TikTok, maybe try to force sales of TikTok. Uh, any sense on the, the tension with China? How do you see that playing out? And then also, on, on is Biden going to be easier on China? That's one of those topics that's Well, we're in a deep freeze now, Jeremy, and I, I think this deep freeze will persist. Uh, I can't see either candidate lightening up on the Chinese. After the election, if Biden were to win, I, I don't see him become, embracing China. Uh, but he may become a little more pragmatic, and I wouldn't be shocked if Biden re-engages with the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, I think he might try to get the U.S. back in that. I think the U.S. has abdicated on a lot of ch- uh, Asian trade uh, issues, and I think Biden might go back to it. If Trump wins, I think we'll probably stay in the freeze for uh, a while longer. Uh, and let me make this point. Some people say, well, this is just a Donald Trump crusade against China. No, it's bipartisan. Both parties in Washington feel that China uh, was outrageous in not being transparent on the virus. They note that China is, has hacked into virtually every major U.S. company, including vaccine makers. So I'd say the mood in Washington right now toward China, even among Democrats like Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren, is, is pretty hostile. So I, I don't see a thaw coming anytime soon. Professor, any final closing thoughts or things for Greg as we have to wrap up the first half? No, I mean, uh, we're looking at the vice presidential choice, uh, and we'll see whether Biden, and I, I agree, I think he needs to stand against some of the violence a little stronger. I think there's been a drift back. Probably mm-hmm. our, is that have the Democrats given up on law and order? That would not be good for Biden, in my opinion. Yep, and I just close by saying there still is a path for Trump. Uh, he's going to go right at the Biden agenda. I'm not sure it's going to work for him to go at Biden's mental acuity. That doesn't seem to be getting much traction. But to go after Biden's agenda, which has shifted fairly sharply to the left, does give Trump a path. Well, this has been a great conversation, Professor. Thanks for staying on. Greg Valliere, Chief Thanks. Policy Strategist at AGF. We always good to check back. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Start of the first half of the program talking about politics and had Greg Valliere and Professor Siegel talk about the upcoming election. Uh, Jeff and Li Chen, I mean, I think one of the very topical things, we, we started closing on what's happening in China. Li Chen, I know you're focused on a lot about China and, and, and uh, maybe give us your read of the current escalation of that discussion there. Hey, yes. Um, I think uh, uh, recently, one word I probably is, uh, it's called a reciprocal or reciprocity, which is a, a little bit difficult to pronounce. Um, I have been talking about this, um, I think, um, internally in our office hour as well, that this seems to be the guiding principle of all the policies coming uh, outside, out of the um, administration. Particularly, uh, if you look at the earlier, um, the first one thing that um, that kind of you can see some of this principle is the airline issue. Um, for people who don't travel, um, you realize that it's very hard to fly to China. And um, in U.S., essentially, because China only allows one or two airlines each week, U.S. essentially said uh, we want to be um, the same as you. So we only allow one or two uh, airlines uh, per week. Even U.S. could uh, take on more airlines. And from that, um, you can see that uh, it went to the second issue, which is the uh, social media issue as well, that because U.S. companies uh, could not get into the Chinese market. So right now, most of the policies, uh, whether it's banning TikTok and uh, WeChat, which is a flagship uh, of by Tencent, as you can see, you know, Tencent uh, stock market is moving a, a lot uh, uh, yesterday and uh, this morning. Um, it, I, I think that this principle um, is is the way I have been viewing how uh, the next stage of the U.S. policy is likely to go. Um, it's going to be, again, I, I mean, on our radio, we've been, we've been discussing a lot. I do believe this is much longer um, conflict and just as Greg says, it's a bipartisan issue. There are a lot of economic, um, uh, you know, rationale behind some of these policies. Where you know you've got a very high support um, 
so uh, that that's the way I see it. I I think uh, there's a pretty long longer term conflict and a lot of policies. Um, if you think about the reciprocal um, view that the policies is going, then it makes you easier to understand what's the next uh, likely U.S. policy could be coming. Jeff, and your and when you look at what's going on in the current dynamics with with China, how are you, how are you looking at it? Yeah, Jeremy, thanks for having me on. Um, well, <laughs> there were some great points made by Greg in the first half of the show. I was able to listen into it, and he made. Um, uh, it, it almost sounded like something I would have said. I, I, there's only two issues um, that seem to have bipartisan support in the current environment, and that's really been the case for several years now. Um, it's cracking down on Silicon Valley and cracking down on China, right? That's the only two things you could get Chuck Schumer and Marco Rubio uh, to, to agree on. <laughs> and so you have this situation where you have to game the election to try to figure out where you are in, in an equity decision on on the China versus the U.S. question, right, or emerging markets versus U.S. equities. And what you can derive, I think, from this is that, you know, Biden would seemingly take a tack of how, how does a Biden or someone from the left crack down on China? You do it on the environmental side. It's a complete winner, right, for, for your base. Um, and you do it on manufacturing, right? I mean, if you think about classic Joe Biden or, or the, the, the Democratic Party of old, it was the party of unionization. This is the, this is the, the plank. If you were to say, I want to bring manufacturing back home, heavy industry, smokestack stuff, back home to Ohio, to Michigan, um, that's how you would campaign um, as, as a Joe Biden-type um, uh, platform. What you're seeing from the Trump administration is much more of a national security, right, a neocon-type concept. Um, you, you know, a TikTok, it's, it's, it's TikTok collecting our data. Uh, Huawei on 5G infrastructure. And so that that's kind of where the pair trade seems to be arising. And, and what I found is when it's funny, when, when you look at Jeremy Siegel talking about the predicted presidential probabilities, I mean, I'm looking at those every day. And you have you have essentially the generic um, Democratic presidency, just in case, you know, for whatever reason, Biden wasn't to make it all the way. It's at about 63 percent probability that the Democrat becomes the president. And you can see when that ticks up. You can see the differentials between Chinese equities and U.S. equities when it ticks up and ticks down. When it ticks up, we find that the tech-oriented um, Chinese equities um, rally. They rally by a larger order of magnitude than the S&P 500, seemingly because, again, if it's, if it's Trump, then there would be a crackdown on tech. But if it's Biden, it would be more of a bring manufacturing jobs back home um, and avoid dumping of, of low-cost products. So when Biden seems to be on – if you're prognosticating a Biden win, it seems to be uh, a positive for Chinese tech, um, Chinese firms that are not affiliated too closely with, with the state. They don't enterprises, those types of concepts. And then it's the opposite side uh, for those for those that are prognosticating a Trump thesis. I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, I, with all the tension uh, with China, the virus starting in China, uh, you would have, you know, it, it surprises me sometimes when I look at the top performers on the year and you see, you know, a basket of Chinese stocks up like 30 percent, you know, if it focused on the mm -hmm. tech and consumer area. Uh, and it sort of goes to how hard it is to, to sort of pick your winners. But I mean, these these tech companies in China are definitely giving U.S. tech a run for their money. Yeah, there, there's so many things going on. You know, there's all kinds of we, I was speaking with someone yesterday and he said, well, who does China want to win? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you could argue, okay, so if you wanted to look at, at um, you know, what, what does the Chinese Communist Party want? Maybe the argument is maybe they want Trump. I mean, Trump is coming down hard, but then again, Trump, Trump sometimes looks the other way on human rights abuses, right? Um, you, would, you would think your gut instinct would be, oh, they would want Biden. Biden would reach out, put a smile on his face, and wouldn't be tweeting against them, but not necessarily truly. Think about it. From the perspective of what's happening in the currency markets, that critical threshold on CNY versus USD, right, the, the Chinese yuan relative to the U.S. dollar, it's a seven-to-one ratio, and it's gone down south of seven, indicating indicating yuan strength. Um, and why would you allow it to to strengthen um, to basically calm down Trump, right, to 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 
throw an olive branch to Trump and favor him in that dollar weakness would help the U.S. economy in the short term. So you could you could even argue that the Chinese want a second term from Trump so that they can, uh, you know, essentially not see D.C. get get in tight with Brussels and Berlin uh, and form this international coalition. The, the thing about it, Jeremy, is I, I think this international coalition of the West is going to happen um, in time regardless because uh, you know, I just put out a white paper a couple, uh, I guess it was earlier this week. I mean, there is everyone that was seemingly sending an olive branch over in the direction of China in the last five or ten years has completely turned on a dime just in the last year. The Australians, Canadians, uh, the British turned around on, on the original Huawei decision and then it essentially aligned with D.C. on it. Um, so you see this unified West um, kind of forming a, a coalition, and, and the Chinese Communist Party seems to be to be isolated. Li Chen, how would you come in, you know, and saying if if what you're hearing in in China is you have any any rumor mill there on who they prefer? How do you how do you read the the uh, the election tea leaves? I think uh, generally they they prefer Biden. I think in in some way that you know it will be um, manufacturing, which you know China actually has strength to compete. Uh, uh, um, but but I. I think also uh, in terms of uh, different countries, you can also see that um, at least some of the details that TikTok and uh, Microsoft were kind of, you know, splitting uh, is the small countries that, you know, very much in uh, strong like is Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, and uh, Europeans have been a little bit uh, sitting on the line, I have to say. Even though, you know, UK um, had that Huawei uh, issue, but they actually also released information saying that, you know, they were kind of under pressure by the Trump administration. So I think the, um, you can through all these negotiations, you can see the countries that that's you know much closer to uh, like strategically with with the U.S. Um, I think that the the tech and the manufacturing um, issue is actually pretty interesting uh, in the sense that if you look at Chinese tech companies, their earnings mostly they came from uh, within China. So um, even if you have a bigger set separation these companies uh, in general is a little bit better weathered uh than their manufacturing uh, or in some way but of course we don't know how 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 much decoupling in manufacturing will go and i think that is where the uncertainty is is the you know is, is the biggest uh, you know right now you see the company in the social media in the tech area but you don't know whether it will be across, or it's just in these issues, in this area. Let me just reintroduce quickly, we're talking with Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, Jeff Winninger, Director of Asset Allocation. Uh, Lee Chen, one of the things we were talking about, and, and I, I, I've been making some statements that if you think about, you know, put the politics aside, and it's hard to put the politics aside today, for sure, but if you said you put U.S. tech versus China tech and for the next 10 years, you know, arguably the China tech has bigger growth opportunities. They have more people and they're using the data more. And if you're going to have big advances in, in innovation, you know, I, I could, I could see, you know, the, the backed Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and all those having as much innovation as our big tech uh, in some ways. Um, now you you make some points that there's some up and coming tech that, uh, you know, is, is gaining share. Do you want to talk about any of those, those uh, yeah. examples? Actually, um, at first, you know, we have this ex-state-owned uh, idea, and of course, you know, uh, the ex-state-owned, you know, wh- when we think about the ex-state-owned index, usually we think about the governance, uh, you know, uh, its advantage. But another advantage I want to uh, emphasize is actually uh, in, in the ex-state-owned idea, uh, industry, it's, it's much more competitive. Uh, for example, uh, China Tech, is probably one of the most competitive uh, areas uh, within in China. So if you think about the U.S., um, who is a direct competitor, if you can think about against uh, Google or Amazon? It's very hard to say there is a very strong one coming. But in China, for almost every, um, you know, big one, there is another one which is, is uh, very much making uh, a play. So, for example, um, Alibaba is of course dominant in like Amazon, but Pinduoduo, which is 
is, which is a, a very uh, you know up and coming. Um, they they have been uh, you know it, it very much uh, making inroads against uh, against the, the the you know the 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 e-commerce part, and the other is the social uh, network. Uh, it's not just WeChat, for example, like Daily Billy, which I know is a, it sounds like so childish name, but and uh, you know their ticker is also <laughs> sounds a little bit uh, childish, but um, they have become uh, just like TikTok. They have become the Chinese younger generation's social media go-to platform. Like not many younger people want to use WeChat. They consider WeChat like for older, like for old people. I, so I think it's very competitive. And also we mentioned that in China, um, people are very, I, I think, pretty receptive to digital technology in the economy. For example, like online education uh, in the U.S. It's hard to find uh, a very top-ranked uh, e-commerce that, spe- you know, specifically to do online education. But in China, online education is actually a part of the a tech, uh, you know, uh, tech space that that has warranted uh, quite quite some. Uh, they've, they've generated quite significant earnings. Jeff, uh, beyond beyond China, where where else are you thinking about? You know, a sort of we, I mean, we sort of have a political-oriented show today, so maybe in context of what's going on, so you mentioned uh, the sort of the focus on China and the focus on big tech. Is that the thing when, when Professor Siegel is answering sort of the shift to value? Is is your answer the election? Like, what's uh, where, where are you thinking? Yeah, and there's, there, I mean, look, at this point, we're now we're now midway through August, or, or I guess you could say first week of August, and and. Um, the election is going to, as it always does, rule the roost. And if you think about what Greg was saying in the first half with Siegel, they were talking about the VP pick. I would, I would tell the listeners, don't pay too much attention to the VP pick. I, I, I never feel like it's as important as people think. Um, for example, I mean, if you were to go out and ask people, who, who is Hillary Clinton? Uh, who is her running mate? And how many people really remember Tim Kaine? Uh, you know, if you go back in the annals of history, um, you may remember you know, Lloyd Benson back in 88 because he had the zinger on Dan Quayle. Um, you know, I knew Jack Kennedy. You are no Jack Kennedy. The old Lloyd Benson, probably the best VP um, uh, presidential debate zinger of all times. Um, but that didn't stop Michael Dukakis from, from completely collapsing um, in that 88 presidential election. You know, you could say Sarah Palin. That one was, was important. To that, that, that was a VP pick that uh, was probably a hindrance. The only one that ever really strikes, that, uh, strikes me as memorable is Admiral Stockdale from Ross Perot back in 92, uh, the third-party candidate. Uh, other than that, I mean, it's, it's, you know, a lot of history shows that VP can only swing you a half of a point or perhaps a point. So I would try not to get too distracted by that. One of the things that I would point out is, okay, so if this thing is truly tightening, which which I think it is, at least in the last week, um, you know, two out, of, two out of the last three polls were really, really um, um, disheartening for Biden and promising for, for Trump. But one was the, the poll by The Hill, The Hill with Harris X. That, that poll was 10 points, um, what, 60 days ago. It's now down to three. The Economist poll is still showing a landslide. So the Economist would have Biden up by nine. You know, when you think about what Greg said, where he said, look, if it was held today, um, Biden would win. If the Economist poll is any indication, he's absolutely right. Uh, Nine points is just yawning. Um, And then the other one is this one always has a lot of um, um, real question marks on it because it's, you know, people say it skews conservative, which is the Rasmussen poll. Um, Rasmussen has Biden up three. And so when you go back, you look at November of 2016, the very last Rasmussen poll had Clinton up two. So it's right around basically on the nose of where they, where they had Clinton um, when she lost. So I think the poll's very telling that, that you know, Rasmussen or the Hill or any guidance, you know, you wouldn't rule out something today. The, the big question, of which I don't know that I have the answer, is what is the percentage of, of people that are lying to the pollsters or are yeah. shy Trump, the loose shy Trump voter? But one of the things that I think is critical is that, uh, unfortunately for Trump's prospects, he now has to spend time and money battling for what used to be a secure Texas. And this, I think, gets into the sector sector work here. Okay, previously the GOP would say Texas is ours. You don't send anybody there. You don't run any television commercials. That has totally changed. And so what you're going to see, I suspect, uh, in the next three months is a lot of 
pro-oil commentary out of Trump, saving the oil patch, saving jobs in Texas, doing some event if they, if they ever open up in Dallas or Houston, right? Um, that would seemingly get the oil bulls back, back together. Uh, to bid up, the, I don't know, perhaps the oil majors or or, or, or something like, uh, you know, S&P 500 energy um, on account of if Trump is rising in the polls. So that's one of the, the, the pair trades is energy rolled to the 500. For if, if you're long Trump, you're long energy. If you're long Biden, you're short energy, right? The other one I think uh, critically is, is Wall Street, right? Seemingly, Trump doesn't say much about Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or J.P. Morgan, whereas the, the Democrats would need to, in order to continue to capture the youth vote, would need to take more of an Occupy Wall Street uh, uh, type stance. So there's the other the other one there. If you're on Trump, Trump is going to win. Seemingly, that would be uh, a positive for financials, for, for the big mega banks. And if you're on, on Biden, the other side uh, uh, of the pair. So that's that's some of the things that are coursing through my mind. The other ones are, I think, obvious if you just kind of think about it is, um, well, right now we have a total blowout of the federal fisc, right? It's going to be multiple trillions of dollars this year on account of essentially transfer payments, right? You're out of work. Here's a transfer payment, $600 of unemployment and so on. Seemingly, you could have a, you know, I have to always battle this in my mind is, do you have a, do you have a Biden presidency um, where the transfer payments are continuing, because remember, even even with this fresh unemployment rate, this unemployment rate is still higher than the worst unemployment rate in the global financial crisis, which was 10, and we're at 10.2 right now. Um, do you have a transfer payments plus Green New Deal infrastructure spend out? Um, so this is inflationary stuff on the Biden side. So all these things should be coursing through your mind if you're trying to game the stock market here. Um, I, I'd be looking at if you're on a Biden thesis, I'd be looking at solar, wind, those types of, of um, hat tip environmental lobby type um, uh, planks. If I may, I want to add uh, quickly about the polls. I, I understand Professor Siegel said posters have adjusted, but I think this one is also um, you have to you know take into account this cancel culture make people even less willing to answer. Mm-hmm. So I. I think, and if you encounter, I mean, I don't know much politics of history, but if you look at all the new owners of, you know, new new sales of guns, new owners of guns, so all these, I you can swing on the margin, um, pretty pretty, you know, two or three percent. And besides, it's really the electoral college that you need to win. It's not the national. So I I know that everybody says like Biden has such a high. I live in the suburb of Philadelphia. Um, we have to Philadelphia, go, Shan. <laughs> Sorry, so, I, I really think President Trump can win uh, if you're well, It's going to be interesting. So I th- thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Lee Chen. Our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.